I was thinking the other day about how a lot of the time we think that caring for the poor and the oppressed is something that other people on other continents have to deal with. And that we, just because we're Americans, we're somehow absolved from actually having to do something regularly, like getting our hands dirty by doing things that provide care for the poor and the downtrodden. But if you'll permit me to be quite frank, that thinking just could not be further from the truth. I want to tell you a story. And it's a story that's quite familiar. Well, at least the title character is familiar. You'll recognize him, I'm sure. This story is actually one of the most famous stories Jesus ever told. But these days we've kind of drifted from the truth. We've lost the punch of the story, kind of like the teeth have been removed from it. Which is why I want to tell it to you through the lens of Jesus' original listeners first, and then through the lens of us. Because what Jesus teaches matters as much now as it did in his day. In Luke 10 in the Bible, we read about one day Jesus being approached by an expert in religious law. This guy's a religious leader and he approaches Jesus and he asks this question, what do I need to do, Jesus, to inherit eternal life? And Christ, as he was often prone to do, he answers the religious leader's question with another question. Well, sir, what's the law of Moses say? How do you read it? And that's perfect for the religious leader because he has that answer down pat. He rattles it off without even breaking a sweat. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus heard his answer, and he's going like, yeah, exactly, perfect, A plus for you, nice work. Just do that, and you'll live. Then the Bible says something very interesting. It says, the man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus. See, the Bible sort of sets up his follow-up question by telling us that this religious leader wanted to justify his actions. And we do that all the time, don't we? We're always trying to justify our actions. In this case, the religious leader is trying to justify his actions toward people who he does not want to view as his neighbors. He hadn't been loving them. He didn't want to love them. So he's looking for the sort of legal loophole that will justify the poor behavior he'd already committed as well as the poor behavior he was planning on continuing. Imagine that. He asked Jesus, and who's my neighbor? Like, how broad is the neighbor category, Christ? Who does God expect me to love like I love myself? And this religious leader's question, it wasn't a question from a vacuum. This question was very, very much a part of the cultural landscape in Jesus' day. See, one of the ancient Jewish books of wisdom actually instructed its readers, never help a sinner. This religious leader who approached Jesus and asked this question, he would have been very up on that book. Thus, his question is really an attempt to create a distinction once and for all between the people who are neighbors and people who are not neighbors. There's this raging debate going in Jesus' day among the rabbis over who in the world is a neighbor, who in the world isn't a neighbor. So here's this religious leader. He's asking Jesus to weigh in, weigh in on once and for all the great neighbor debate of the day. Who is really my neighbor? And Jesus answers this religious leader's question now, not with a question, but with a story. And Jesus gets pretty scandalous with this story. He's going to get himself actually in a whole lot of hot water The story unfolds like this. There was a Jewish man and he was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along 
But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Now, every single person Jesus is talking to on this day, they have this very picture in their mind's eye. They know the precise road Jesus is talking about. They know that it stretches from Jerusalem to Jericho. They know it's 17 miles long. It's still there, as I understand it. Everybody there that day listening to Jesus talk, they knew it was a notoriously dangerous road. It winds through this quite narrow valley. It's surrounded by hills, covered with all sorts of little nooks and crannies, every one of them a fabulous place for bandits and robbers to hide out in and then jump out from behind an ambush of travelers and anyone passing by. Everyone knew that going down that road by yourself was a recipe for disaster. So here comes this guy, and he's traveling down this very road. He meets disaster head on. Bad guys or bandits, as they're called in the scripture, they jump out from behind their hiding places and they ambush him. They leave him lying on the ground, half dead, the Bible says. What happens next? Well, a priest comes by. And it helps, I think, if we can picture the road we're talking about in Luke 10. It helps us capture the whole gist of what's going on. Just for the record, this is not a giant four-lane highway with shoulders that we're talking about. The road we're talking about is not I-90. It isn't the Huffine International Speedway. It's not even like Love Lane. As I understand from people who have actually walked down this road, there are some places where a person would have to walk in a single-file line to pass. It's really a lot like the trail up the M more than it is a road, as we understand roadways. That all means that when this priest walks by this dude, it's not like he's clear over on the other side of the Huffine Lane, down in the borrow pit, off the edge where he might not have even been seen. There would have literally been no way for the priest to overlook the beat up left for dead guy. It's not like he could have just blinked and missed him kind of a thing, not a chance. He would have literally had to have stepped over the guy or had the donkey he was likely riding on step over the guy on this road that Jesus is talking about. And this priest, it's unbelievable, but this priest didn't help this guy at all. Now, lots and lots of people have speculated for a long time about why that priest didn't stop to help this guy. But it doesn't really matter, does it? There's a human being in deep need, and this priest doesn't stop. And I guarantee you that this priest was a guy who considered himself to be incredibly righteous. And yet in the face of that, he does absolutely nothing for a man who was in great need. What happens next in the story? The Bible says a temple assistant walked over, looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Now, what's another name for a temple assistant? It's a Levite. So along comes this Levite, and he happens upon this beat-up left-for-dead guy, and he, too, passes by on the other side of the trail. And either one of these guys, the priest or the Levite, they could have done something, right? They could have stopped. They could have said something. They could have prayed. They could have given the man first aid. They could have stopped the bleeding. They didn't. What they do? They saw, and then they left. Now, this is a great story from the crowd's vantage point. It's very true to life. They can see in their mind's eye all of that actually happening. Now, see, in Jesus' day, there are these three character stories that were quite popular. People, every time, they knew exactly who the characters were going to be. There would always be a priest, and there would always be a Levite, and then there would always be a third guy, the one who would break the pattern of wrongs that had been done and would actually get it right. 
And that third guy, every time in these stories, would be just an ordinary Jewish guy, a layman. In our day, the guy we call Joe Sixpack. You know Joe. And the crowd gathered there with Jesus that day. They're very much looking forward to the punchline to the story. Jesus so masterfully wove this story. And these folks, remember, they're not priests. They're not Levites. These are lay people, just normal Joe Sixpack kind of folks who Jesus is talking to. And they're anticipating the punchline to the story when their kind of guy does the right thing, sets all of the previous injustices right. But then Jesus drops the S-bomb. The priest walks by the beat-up left-for-dead guy. The Levite walks by the beat-up left-for-dead guy. And then along came a Samaritan. And you just cannot imagine the scandal when Jesus did that. Even saying the word Samaritan was like saying the worst word you can possibly imagine. Jews hated Samaritans. As a matter of fact, the Samaritans had quite recently, in Jesus' day, defiled the temple of God by throwing the rotting bones of human corpses into the temple courts. Pure evil, according to the Jews. One rabbi, he hated the Samaritans so much, he said these words, The Israelite that eats the bread of the Samaritans, that sits at the table with the Samaritan, or even consumes food that had come from one of the Samaritans, is like him that eats the flesh of the swine. Strong words. For the Jews, the very highest form of disrespect to God was hanging out or even tolerating a Samaritan. Do you understand how much the Jews hated these people? Can you sort of feel the visceral hatred welling up? And what Jesus does here by saying the word Samaritan, it's just like the political candidate who goes off the teleprompter, says something right off the top of his or her head, and it's all of a sudden like an open mouth, insert foot kind of moment. and becomes a death knell for their candidacy, right? You know what I'm talking about. It's just like that when Jesus says, the Samaritan came by. <gasps> Jesus, what are you thinking? Now, we all know this story by the title of the story of the Good Samaritan, don't we? Probably a little heading in your Bible says that right above where this text appears, right? But it wasn't like that for the Jews. There's no such thing as any kind of story of any kind of Good Samaritan in all of Israel. Samaritans to Israelites were indecent. They were offensive. When Jesus even said that word, he knew exactly what he was doing. This was not any accident. But Jesus didn't just say the word Samaritan. Notice what he does. We have this pattern going in this story, right? The priest sees the beat-up, left-for-dead guy, and he does what? Nothing. Then the Levite sees the beat-up, left-for-dead guy. He does nothing. Then the Samaritan sees the beat-up, left-for-dead guy. And what's he do? The Bible tells us, when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Jesus takes us straight to what's happening in the heart of the despised Samaritan. There's compassion, there's mercy, there's pity. There's, I just can't leave that poor guy there sort of feelings. I have to do something. Do we know what was going on in the heart of the priest? Uh-uh. We've got ideas though, don't we? Do we know what was going on in the heart of the Levite? Uh-uh. And what Jesus does is basically tell that gathered crowd that the Samaritan was closer to the heart of God than the priest was, than the Levite was. You talk about scandal. Now, what's the Bible say that the Samaritan does for the beat-up, left-for-dead guy? He felt compassion for him, the Bible says. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. 
The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. It's an interesting point that John Ortberg points out. The Samaritan pours oil and wine on the beat-up left-for-dead guy, right? Now, what's stunning about that is that oil and wine are both used in the temple. They're instruments of the worship of God. And who should have known best how to use those instruments of worship? The priest and the Levite. But notice they didn't. They didn't know how to use the very instruments they regularly used to worship Yahweh in a way that would really please the heart of God. The Samaritan understood, though. He knew. And that stung. It's like Jesus is rubbing the crowd's nose and how wonderful the Samaritan is. All these things that he does and he does and he does. And think on this. What do you think would happen one day in an Israelite village in the middle of broad daylight if all of a sudden a Samaritan rode into town with a half-dead Jewish man on his donkey? How do you think that would go? Not good. Yes, a mob would form against the Samaritan and it would get ugly. But this Samaritan doesn't care. He does it. He comes right into town in the middle of the day and he spends the night, as a matter of fact, taking care of the beat-up left-for-dead guy at the inn. The Samaritan risks his life to do that. It's astounding. Now that Jesus has ticked off every single person in the crowd, he says to the religious leader who started this whole conversation, now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Notice, that religious leader, he can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He won't even say it. He says, that one, the guy who showed mercy. Now think back to what started Jesus telling this whole story. It was the who is my neighbor question, right? That's the question the religious leader asked Jesus. And what's Jesus say? Jesus says, it isn't just the beat up left for dead guy on the side of the road who's your neighbor. He is your neighbor, absolutely. We're assuming that. But the one who Jesus is really trying to get his audience to see as their neighbor is the Samaritan. It's the person, the group, the ideology, it's the whatever that you hate most in the world. Jesus says, they're your neighbor. Now get this. This isn't just a feel-good story about being good and being nice to people. The Hallmark Channel was not airing the story in Jesus' day. This is an incredibly in-your-face challenge to his own people about how far they were willing to go to convey the heart of God to their communities. And that's what Jesus does. It's what he's all about. Taking a scalpel to his own people, to you and to me, because we all have a way of trying to justify our lack of love. We all have a way of trying to justify our stepping over and continuing past people whom life has beaten up, those left by the side of the road, starving children, families ravaged by HIV, AIDS. On and on the list goes, doesn't it? People who get left in the dust for whatever reason. And we say, we try to justify. We say, I didn't see them. I didn't notice them. They don't look like me. They're way over there. Those people are my neighbor. I thought somebody else was on that. I thought somebody else was responsible. I thought somebody else was working on that. And Jesus drives the story all the way to the finish line when he turns to that religious leader and he says these words, now you go and do the same. Now you go and you do the same. Jesus says, join my movement. Be a part of everything that I'm about. Yes, Jesus says, I'll be with you. Yes, we'll go and do exactly what God has us do for people who get beaten up and left by the sides of roads. Go on, do it, Christ says. See, this life that Jesus is inviting us to right here, right now, today, 
is really a see-the-need-meet-the-need kind of life. Jesus' invitation to us to see the need, meet the need, means that we're not like the priest in the story of the Good Samaritan who just steps over desperate need and past people who have been left alongside the roadways of life. The the see-the-need-meet-the-need kind of life Jesus summons us to means that we're not going to be like the Levite either, who, just like the priest, sees desperate need, steps over and past people who have been left alongside the roadways of life. That isn't us. Jesus said, go and do the same. The same as the Good Samaritan who saw the need and met the need. He did something about it. He didn't wait for his church to start a program to do something for the poor guy. No. He didn't go see the government official in the town who was responsible for patrolling that roadway, telling there's a man out there and that the government needed to go out and do something about it. Uh-uh. What's a Samaritan do? He saw great desperate need. In the course of going about his own business, he stopped what he was doing and he did something about it. He gave of his own time, his own money, his own effort. He knelt down in the dirt. He scooped up that beat up, left for dead guy and helped nurture him back to health. See the need, meet the need. And Jesus tells us today to go do the very same thing. Go and do what he did. See the need, meet the need. Seeing the need and meeting the need looks like a whole bunch of things. It might look like your family noticing a family next door or down the street who just simply needs someone to pick the kids up after school so they can stay at work. See the need, meet the need. It might look like you noticing a coworker or a classmate who's struggling with everything in life is always in a crisis, in a ditch, and you notice. And you stop what you're doing, and you buy them a cup of coffee, and you share how a relationship with Jesus Christ can change the entire trajectory of their life as well as their eternity. See the need, meet the need. It might look like noticing the family across the street who's been out of work for a long season of time and so the next time you're at Costco, you fill a whole cart just for their family or maybe you buy them a big old gift card and you just leave it on their doorstep. See the need, meet the need. How about the student who's working so hard to stay in school, barely paying the bills, barely getting by? What if you invited that student to move into the spare bedroom you have and live rent-free? See the need, meet the need. And on and on and on the list goes. And I want you to imagine with me what it would be like if every single one of us, every single day, lived the Good Samaritan ethic of see the need, meet the need. Just imagine what would happen in our towns and in our valley if every single time we saw a need, we just met it. We just did something about it. What a difference that would make. Neighbors serving neighbors, roommates serving roommates, coworkers serving coworkers, friends serving friends, strangers serving strangers, and even enemies serving enemies. Imagine how the landscape of our valley is going to change when we're all mobilized to see the need and meet the need. It's going to be a different place, isn't it? Different socially, different economically, different spiritually, different tangibly. It's becoming a different place because we are on the very mission of Jesus. That's worth giving your life to, isn't it? we're certainly not living in first century Palestine, the needs all around us are just as real and just as present as they were in Jesus' day, aren't they? I want you to know that we as church leaders are keenly aware that this concept of see the need and meet the need, it can be a bit daunting, can't it? It's for that very reason 
see the need, meet the need being quite daunting, that we're choosing to align our church with several local agencies, several local ministries, that should you choose to lock arms with them, will provide you and your family with a few on-ramps into what it is to serve orphans, the oppressed, the downtrodden, and those who have been left in the dust right here in our own community, right here in our very own backyard. These agencies and ministries we're aligning our church with, they're what we would call frontline agencies, frontline ministries, and they're all about the very thing that Jesus talked about in the story today. They're good Samaritan types of serving agencies and ministries. They're out in our community day in, day out, week in, week out, seeing the need, meeting the need, and every single one of them would be quite delighted to count you and your family amongst their volunteer ranks. Out here in the lobby today, we have an organization called Family Promise with us. Family Promise is a fantastic local ministry that helps homeless families in the valley with temporary shelter while working to help them locate housing of their very own. You and your family could actually lock arms, partner with Family Promise on their mission of see the need, meet the need right here in our own community. We think lots of times there aren't homeless people in the Gallatin Valley. There are, and Family Promise is serving them supremely well. I'd invite you out today. Stop by the Family Promise kiosk and interact with them and invite you to serve with them if the Lord nudges you in that way. Also out here in the lobby today, we have Love, Inc. Love, Inc. is a local coalition of churches, By the way, Journey Church is very much a part of that coalition. Love, Inc. is mobilized on the mission of serving people in our own community with a variety of tangible helps. Love, Inc. really defines well what it is to see the need and meet the need. Stop out at their kiosk today. Meet the Love, Inc. folks. And I'd invite you and your family to jump in with both feet. Serve with Love, Inc. Last but not least, we have Youth Dynamics here with us today. Youth Dynamics is a fantastic organization that serves youth and families via foster care, respite care, and mentoring opportunities. These guys are blue chip, see the need, meet the need folks. They'd be honored for you to consider serving with them. Stop out and see them, meet them, find out how you and your family could connect with them and serve. And then folks, there's just one more thing today. As part of our church family's commitment to regularly and in an ongoing way see the need and meet the need right in our own community. This weekend, we're launching an effort that we're calling It's a Love Thing. It's catchy, isn't it? It's a love thing. What's It's a Love Thing? Here's what it is. Once every quarter, once every three months, we're going to tithe 10% of our general fund offerings to see the need, meet the need right here in our own community, not around the globe, right here in our own community. That means starting this weekend in just a moment when you give your normal tithes and offerings to Journey's general fund, we're going to take 10% of what you give to see the need and meet the need in our own valley. In years past, this benevolence fund, as we've called it, has just been a line item in our budget. This year we didn't do that. Why? Because we wanted to put some more intentionality to it. We wanted to give more weight to how we as a church meet the needs of the people in our own backyard who are oppressed, downtrodden, and those who have been left in the dust. Journey's Benevolence Fund has been operating for as long as we've been a church, and it's served countless families in tangible ways all across the Gallatin Valley. Here's just a sampling. We've served the widow whose husband died suddenly, leaving her with kids to raise, rent to pay, groceries to buy. We've served an impoverished, disabled teen who lives alone, unable to work due to multiple disabilities with food money and medical bills, rent money, etc. We've served out-of-work families or underemployed families, helping them pay utility bills, buy groceries, buy clothes for their kids, and so on. 
We served homeless families who needed a hotel just for a single night before they could access a permanent shelter solution. We've been able to serve stranded families that needed a hotel during bad weather. We've served families who had unexpectedly high heating bills. We've helped families with unexpected car repair bills. We've even been able to serve single-parent families who would not have been able to provide Christmas to their kids without assistance. See the need, meet the need. We've been doing that very thing for as long as we've been a church, and we're thrilled that this new It's a Love Thing initiative will continue and amp up our effort to be able to serve our neighbors that God has invited and called us to serve. Taking a quarterly tithe of our offerings, serving the tangible needs of our neighbors right here in our valley. It's a love thing. Will you bow your heads? Let's pray to God together. God in heaven, thank you so much for this incredible story of the Good Samaritan. Thank you so much for the potent example that the Good Samaritan is to all of us. It isn't about quibbling over who is our neighbor. It's just about seeing the need and meeting the need in very, very tangible ways. God, I pray that you would nudge our hearts in significant fashion toward how we can just pay attention, that we would just be listening to you and that you would just bring needs right across in front of us, God, and that we would, with pinprick sensitivity, pick up on them and just get about it. God, these ministries and agencies that are in our lobby today, I pray that you would use us as a church community to amp up and increase exponentially the work that you're doing through these fantastic organizations, God. Use us to make life-changing, life-altering, even eternity-altering impacts all around our valley, all around our community, God. This It's a Love Thing initiative, God, would you just bless it? Would you multiply it? Would you send these dollars? And would you help us use them in very, very powerful ways in the lives of people that people would actually see Jesus in this tangible help that we are providing? You're the best, God. We love you with our whole lives. We're all in with you. You're the best. In Jesus' name we pray this. Everyone agreed and said, amen.